Today, the United States has the most powerful military in the world. It has more tanks, ships, and planes than any other country. It has over 70% of the world's soldiers and over 750 foreign bases. The U.S. spends $730 billion a year on defense. That's more than China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, and Brazil spend combined. America's leaders have argued that this is unavoidable. As Bill Clinton's Secretary of State Madeleine Albright once put it, if America has to use force, it's because we are the indispensable nation. But what if that was not the case? I'm Laura Marsh, the literary editor of The New Republic. And I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at the magazine. Today, we're talking about America's military dominance. How did the U.S. decide to become the world's preeminent power? And could it decide not to be? Later in the episode, we're talking about Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who is fighting in a runoff in Georgia to win back her seat and retain Republican control of the Senate. This is the politics of everything. Historian Stephen Wertheim wants to challenge the idea that the U.S. has no choice in its role. In his new book, Tomorrow the World, he traces America's rise to global dominance and asks if the U.S. is destined to continue on the same path. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Before we get into the history that the book covers, I just want to ask you about what U.S. primacy actually means. Obviously, the U.S. has larger armed forces than other countries, But what do you mean when we're talking about global supremacy? I mean the commitment, the consensus, a bipartisan consensus that the United States should be responsible for leading the world's order and enforcing it by armed force. In practical terms, what does that translate to? What kind of power does that give the U.S.? Well, it gives the United States lots of military power. The theory is that it also gives the United States lots of other good things. General influence underpins perhaps economic relations, and even the notion of order suggests keeping rules and laws in place that are supposed to restrain other powers. I'm not sure that it actually confers all those things, but the theory is that much of what Americans want to see in the world is somehow ultimately undergirded by the U.S. projection of military power globally. So everything you just described sounds actually quite good, you know? (laughs) One could imagine saying that this seems like a, a very good order for the world to have. What made you start to question America's place in the world? Well, in high school, 9-11 happened. I paid a lot of attention to the debate uh, over how America should respond and followed for two decades now what has become a forever war waged by the United States in the greater Middle East. As I undertook my own studies historically, I started to think about the larger structure of power that's in place and this kind of unquestioned consensus that, of course, it must be a good thing for the United States to be the military hegemon of the world. So few people in my own time 
seem to want to ask critical questions about whether that was the right role for the United States to play and even why explain, just please explain, why are we doing this? I wanted to look back in history and ask, well, where did this consensus come from? I think we are very close in age. Uh, I was also in high school during 9-11. And I wonder if you share my feeling that that generation of political leaders casual invocation of the necessity and goodness of American superiority just rang hollow to the degree that you found it confusing why it was everywhere, why it was just like the consensus. That's right. I mean, in in retrospect, it might have been more in the interests of those who wanted to maintain a political consensus around U.S. military leadership to be more accepting of smaller critiques. And for example, admit that the war in Iraq was a terrible disaster and actually hold some people accountable. Right. I think in a way, this attachment to U.S. military force has actually created a real disaffection amongst a lot of Americans, especially the younger generation. I think it's unfortunate because I'm not an accelerationist. (laughs) If they had had a couple war crimes trials, maybe fewer of us would just reject the entire uh, American superiority argument. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please be good liberals. Do the whole game of co-opting more radical critiques. Bring U.S. troops home from (laughs) Afghanistan. Take this talking point about endless war and make it harder for people like me to use. But the system seems unwilling or unable to do that. And it has opened up, I think, a real questioning by many Americans, left and right, and especially younger Americans, about what this whole structure, this enormous structure of military power is supposed to achieve. I think what you're saying is that the moment of awakening is the post-9-11 period, the Iraq war. But what you've written is a book that focuses on World War II. Right. So why did you want to go to that moment in history? Throughout my lifetime, there's been a kind of drumbeat of nostalgic calls to return the United States to the moment of untrammeled good of World War II. We see it in recent history with complaints that the Trump administration was trying to undo the U.S. post-war liberal world order, so-called. I thought, wait a minute, perhaps our current problems are rooted in the very moment that Americans tend to think is their greatest moment as a nation, World War II. It's the moment that refounded the modern United States. And so I wanted to think about why exactly the United States made a commitment at that time to be the preeminent military power in the world when prior to World War II, in fact, that was very much not what American leaders were pursuing. So before 1945, what was America's sort of stance towards the rest of the world? So before the war, because I think the pivotal moment of change comes actually in 1940 and 41, the United States had a foreign policy consensus that took the avoidance of armed entanglements in the so-called old world of Europe and Asia to be one of the core tenets that the United States should pursue. To be clear, the United States was a significant colonial power by the turn of the 20th century. But all this time, American presidents, intellectuals claimed it was one thing to attain dominance in the new world, but it would be quite another to similarly pursue dominance in Europe and Asia. 
Right. So the idea was we as a nation could do basically whatever we wanted in what we considered our own backyard, our hemisphere, basically. But it was like, we do not need to get involved in whatever war Europe's having now. They're having them all the time. We don't need to involve ourselves in that, right? That's right. So this is not a vision of pacifism or anything like it, to be clear. But what it does mean is that a real rupture had to take place to breach this tradition of avoiding military entanglements and try to dominate the world as a whole. So according to the traditional story that's told about what happens in World War II, why did that change? The orthodox account goes something like this. The United States was once isolationist. Maybe by World War I, there were people who disagreed with that isolationism and saw that the world was becoming more interconnected. The isolationists really didn't want the United States to get involved in World War II. There was a battle between these two groups, and only after Pearl Harbor did it become obvious that the internationalists were correct. The United States got involved in World War II, and then there's some uh, confusion in this narrative about exactly the extent to which the United States set out to be the dominant power after the war, but certainly by the Cold War the commitment to project its armed force globally was in place. So where does the idea that the power America gained was kind of thrust upon it, that it was some form of unwanted destiny? The real answer is that that's deeply embedded in American ideology, the ideology of exceptionalism. But the way that ideology is connected to actual events is to say the United States was slumbering. It really didn't want to get involved in international politics before Pearl Harbor. And then because it was attacked in this sneak attack by Japan, everyone woke up to the obvious threat. And from then on, the United States acted differently. So that's the story as I, I guess, basically remember it from school and maybe movies. What is the problem with it in your view? So it can't possibly be the case that United States was isolationist, and isolationists were at the vanguard of American foreign policy because no one even thought to use the term isolationism until the 1930s with any widespread currency. It was only as a set of Americans decided to make the United States the supreme military power that they started to call their opponents isolationists. So when they're using that word, what do they mean? What is an isolationist? What they're doing is engaging in a conceptual slippage. So they are trying to say that because somebody opposes the use of force on a global scale in Europe and Asia, that they don't want the United States to engage in any kind of interaction with the outside world. I see. So because I think when most people hear the term isolationist, they think it means when a country has a policy that it would never get involved in anything that happens outside its own borders. Right. And what you're saying is that has never been the case in American history. There's never been a moment when the U.S. has been completely disentangled from every other country in the world, ever. That's right. Clearly, that hasn't described U.S. conduct. It's just nonsense to say that the United States practiced anything like isolationism. In fact, it's so much nonsense, nobody thought to use that term in reference to the United States until a very late date for a specific reason in the 30s and 40s. So one thing I'm trying to get straight is the difference between the sort of orthodox account and the account you're putting forward. Because in one, it seems like the entry of the U.S. into World War II is a reaction to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
in your account, it's a more considered decision. Is that right? As the war in Europe began toward the end of 1939, a whole set of American experts, people in universities, think tanks, in particular, the leaders of the Council on Foreign Relations went down to Washington and they got the State Department to sign off on making the Council on Foreign Relations the semi-official site of U.S. post-war planning, even before the United States had entered the war, or before, frankly, almost any Americans thought the United States should enter World War II. I want to just ask a very basic question here. What is the Council on Foreign Relations? It's a think tank, and it was part of the formation of a, a foreign policy elite in the United States that got going really after the First World War by, in a sense, outsourcing post-war planning to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Roosevelt administration could avoid it becoming known that the U.S. government was already doing post-war planning, which could suggest an effort to get the United States into the war. One thing I'm trying to understand is why this version of events calls into question the role America now has more than the traditional account does. Why should the fact that we decided to get involved make it more likely that we shouldn't be involved anymore? One thing the history shows is that advocates of U.S. military dominance, most of them in candid moments understood that they were not acting to keep the United States from being invaded. The United States was safe in North America. Likewise, the United States economy was prosperous. It did not need to take up arms in order to maintain the conditions of American economic prosperity at that time. So what it was doing was pursuing goals that were larger than that and hard even for its advocates to articulate in concrete terms. The case for the U.S. becoming the dominant power in the post-war world hinged on a notion that world order would otherwise be under threat. The other reason why I think this history calls into question the current U.S. role is the original argument for U.S. military primacy was premised on the idea that totalitarian powers might conquer much of the world. But once totalitarian conquerors disappeared, U.S. armed dominance came to be, in my view, something like an end unto itself. Given what we've seen in the last three decades— Given the nature of the world in the 21st century, I think we have to ask, is the alternative to U.S. military dominance really worse than what we have seen to date and where we might be going in the future? Well, I think that's a good question. What is the alternative? You know, I think the answer is uh, a little bit different if you look at different regions, right? It seems very clear to me that if the United States were to withdraw from its endless wars in the Middle East, not only would the United States be significantly better off not sending people to die on a constant basis, but the region would also be better off. With respect to Europe, I would say something similar, even though the dynamics of Europe are really different. The ostensible reason that the United States is forward deployed in Europe and insists on being the main arbiter of security questions is to guard against the threat that Russia might conquer Europe. This is just not a plausible thing. And even if it were plausible, there is no reason why capable, wealthy European states with 
better healthcare systems than we have, cannot judge these threats for themselves. So I think those two regions, to me, the answer is really clear. The more difficult question is East Asia, given the rise of China, because China poses, or at least many in D.C. think that it poses a similar kind of threat to what the Axis powers pursued in the middle of the 20th century and what Soviet-backed communism pursued. World domination by a power that could be described as totalitarian, certainly is, is illiberal. I don't think that that's a significant threat right now. China, for all its troubling behavior on a number of fronts, has not had a significant record of armed aggression. So I think China deserves careful attention, but we still have an opportunity to play a more modest military role in East Asia, incentivize our partners and allies to step up, and we should really not want to get into World War III with China if it's not necessary to American security and if we can avoid it. So I think the, the term that you're using frequently is restraint. Having some kind of presence but not being the overwhelming power, even that seems like a pretty tough sell in American politics. What does it mean to be discussing these ideas and looking at this history at this moment? Something deep is changing in the United States right now. We just lived through the first election in American history where both candidates from major parties acknowledged that their country was engaging in endless war and vowed to end it, whether they meant it or not. That's interesting. So am I terribly bullish that the kind of change I'd like to see in American foreign policy will happen over the next four years? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I do think a number of positive steps may be taken. And when I look at a 10, 20-year horizon, I think a tremendous amount of change may well be possible. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. After a short break, we'll talk to Alex Shepard about the Senate runoff elections in Georgia. Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler comes from a family of Midwestern farmers. She studied at University of Illinois, got an MBA at DePaul University in Chicago, and worked in the private sector until 2019, when the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, appointed her to fill a Senate seat vacated by Johnny Isaacson, who left for health reasons. This year, as a senator, she conveniently offloaded some stocks just in time to escape the worst losses of the pandemic. Now she's competing with Democrat Raphael Warnock in a runoff election in one of two races up for grabs in Georgia. The contest is incredibly consequential. If Leffler wins in January, Republicans will retain control of the Senate and make life very, very hard for Joe Biden. We're joined now by Alex Shepard, a staff writer at The New Republic, to talk about who Kelly Leffler is and why the insider trading fiasco hasn't hurt her more. Alex, uh, just to start off, how exactly did a farm girl from Illinois end up as a senator from Georgia? Well, I think if you listen to the way that Kelly Leffler tells it, she is somebody who grew up in a hard scrabble soybean farm and clawed her way to the top by 
sheer force of will and pluck. I think the real story is that she got there the way a lot of U.S. senators have gotten there. She, one, worked in the financial sector for a long period of time, amassing like a small fortune. And then, I guess this is a little different than some other senators, she married the head of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. And then at that point, her fortune ballooned. And then she sort of became the establishment Republican choice when a Georgia Senate seat opened up in late 2019. And she sort of clawed on to, to that seat ever <laughs> since, fending off a, a Trumpist challenger, one who the president still, I think, secretly in his heart wants Doug Collins. But also she's done it by tacking to the right and casting herself as one of Trump's most important allies in the Senate. But she in general, is not the kind of person that you look at and see this is a savvy campaigner. This is somebody who has a lot of experience in Georgia politics. She hasn't even lived in the state for very long. And I think that's where some of this stuff about growing up in a farm comes from. Uh, You're right. She leans on the farming background a lot for, I think, rural authenticity purposes. But, you know, Midwestern soybean farms are not little mom-and-pop operations. The American Prospect reported that in addition to her father running a trucking business, they received literally millions of dollars in federal subsidies for for their crops. So yeah, I mean, I was trying to dig into the specifics about her family's financial situations, but I think if you just look at the disclosures that we do have from farm subsidies, the suggestion is that this is not uh, a character out of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Uh, <laughs> this is somebody who has, you know, largely lived a, a pretty charmed life and has amassed a sizable fortune to the point that she owns a professional sports franchise. Well, you've written about her for this issue's Oligarch of the Month column. How rich is Kelly Leffler? So this is one of the great mysteries. It's difficult to tell even with financial disclosures in part because so much of the wealth is tied up in stock. You can't say that she is the richest member of Congress. So everyone comes up with a funny way to say it. She's likely the richest member of Congress. But the general estimates are somewhere in the $500 million mark. That high estimate is about $800 million. The photo that ran with your article in the magazine is her and her husband, Jim Sprecher, standing in front of their mansion in Georgia. And you see, it's the front door, so you see these two big columns, lots of marble. <laughs> you know, like, it's a real mansion. It's not just a big house. That, I believe, was the most expensive real estate transaction in Atlanta history. My favorite thing about this house is that it has a name, and that name is Disconte. Uh, which... Pardon? (laughs) How are we spelling uh, that? D-E-S-C-A-N-T-E. Okay. According to this real estate article that I read, it's a 15th century Italian word, and it means the highest harmony to the main melody of life. Oh, how musical. (laughs) Uh, Because because once you get rich, then you have to prove that you're cultured. (laughs) Yes. It's very funny the authenticity games you have to play as a wealthy person who has decided to enter electoral politics and what you have to do if you are just being a normal wealthy person. (laughs) Like on the one hand, when you're trying to buy your way into high society, you're like, my house needs a name. And then when you're like running in a runoff election, you're like, "Ah, no one look at my house with a name. (laughs) It's also when you start to read about these places, nothing about them makes any sense. In one article, it referred to its Versailles parquet. 
And I was like, it's that size. I have no idea what it is. Yeah. (laughs) We were looking into that for uh, my kid's bedroom (laughs) for Cy Parquet. (laughs) Well, I guess all this discussion of her wealth leads into the main question I have about why Kelly Leffler is even able to come in second in this last Senate race and how she's made it to a runoff which is the main thing that she's known for is her handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. What happened there? She sold $20 million in in stocks after (laughs) receiving a briefing about just how bad COVID-19 was at a time when most Americans weren't thinking about it at all. This would be shortly after Kelly Leffler joins the United States Senate in January of this year. She is part of a sort of closed-door briefing of United States senators. The senators are told that this virus is very deadly. It's going to result in a significant disruption of the United States economy. On the same day, Leffler starts to unload stocks. And over the next few weeks, liquidates close to $20 million in stock holdings. Once COVID hits, those stocks lose a third of their value. Uh, And she also buys two stocks, one of which is a company uh, that makes telework software. So these are very prescient stock trades. While these investment decisions are being made, uh, Leffler is publicly backing the Trump administration's line, which is, this is just like the flu, it's going to go away. Eventually, she is among four U.S. senators who's trades are investigated by the Department of Justice and I believe the Senate Ethics Committee as well. Those are Burr, Jim Inhofe, Dianne Feinstein, and Kelly Leffler. Obviously, that happened quite a long time ago now. Have there been any consequences for her before the election? Yeah, so Leffler's position is that you know she didn't know about it and that the timing of this just happened to coincide with this briefing from Dr. Fauci and others. And I think her portfolio, given that her husband is also the CEO of a company that is in charge of the New York Stock Exchange, it's sensible that there would be third-party advisors making these decisions. And yet, I think even that explanation sort of overlooks the bigger problem here, which is that Leffler was knowingly downplaying the risks of what was coming. And while she was doing that, whether she knew about it or not, she was making sure that her own house was very much in order. And in terms of there being an inquiry, that's all over now, actions. Yeah, so the Department of Justice closed its inquiry in May, and the Senate Ethics, I think, did around the same time for not just Leffler, but the other senators involved as well. And I think because of the the involvement of a third-party firm, this case was probably not going to be prosecutable, although that says more about you know, United States enforcement of insider trading laws in general. When you look into the actual circumstances here, it remains extraordinarily shady. I could talk about congressional insider trading all day. Uh, it was fully legal until 2012. Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah, it was completely legal for members of Congress to insider trade until 2012. And then a prior round of insider trading scandals led them to pass the Stock Act, which finally made it illegal to insider trade for members of Congress. Oh, and originally, that bill said the trades they made and all their financial disclosures had to be available in an online database. 
And then right after they passed it, they passed a new law that changed it so that to get the records, you literally had to go to the basement of a building in the Capitol and print them out for like 15 cents a page. So as soon as, as, soon as they passed it, with all they, they stripped out the transparency. So it's, it's, it's historically been pretty difficult to get in any sort of trouble for insider trading as a member of Congress. Yeah. The thing I'm still trying to wrap my head around is, okay, the investigation has been dropped. To be at the center of that story, though, surely that still has to be in the minds of voters. And 1.2 million voters in Georgia decided that Kelly Leffler is the person that they want as their senator. She's got 25% of the vote. How does that happen? I think that there are a couple of things happening here. One is that these races are playing out in culture war terms, and Leffler has responded to these allegations as if that you know these are political charges being made against her because people don't like the president and they don't like how much she likes the president. I think the other thing too is that you know Leffler is running a campaign that is in large part opposed to. COVID-19 restrictions in a state whose governor has, Brian Kemp, has been on the front lines of fighting against any sort of mass mandate or, or other restriction, you know, to the point that they're doing uh, campaign events that are largely unmasked. Florida Senator Rick Scott recently appeared without a mask at one and then tested positive. So looking ahead to the runoff, if someone were to look at the, the last round, Warnock got 32%, Leffler got 25%, and her Republican rival, Doug Collins, got 20 Just looking at the math there, it seems like if you add up the two Republicans, you get a winner against the Democrat. What's the likely outcome, in your opinion, of that runoff election in January? The way that Georgia runoffs work, they've always favored Republicans in the past, I think, the Republicans are doing everything they possibly can on a national level to make this a referendum on the stolen election that happened on November 3rd. I do think that Georgia is a mystery all of a sudden, but that Leffler is clearly the favorite in this race and should probably be expected to win. Well, it should give plenty of time for uh, various financial scandals to point at and ask why voters don't care about them. <laughs> All right. I think on that note, Alex, uh, thank you so much as always. It is a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by Talk House. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.